We are back in Micah, finally, after our excursion into the book of the Revelation, right? But uh, we're going to continue on in Micah. We're in Micah 4 still. We made it through 6 to 8, so we're going to jump in and look at verses 9 and 10 today, hopefully. You know, uh, we'll get through the whole two verses. <clears throat> I think we should. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. Um, there's some interesting things here. What? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yes, I know. It's like, now. And uh, we made it to the first word of uh, <laughs> verse 9. Yes, that's, that's common, but now we'll be all right. Uh, but there's some interesting things in here. But let's pray, and then we'll start uh, discussing some of those interesting interesting things. All right, so, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you again for um, your day, Father, that we come and gather as your people to worship you, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you uh, would, in fact, uh, send your spirit to illumine your text as we read it, as we go through it, so we might see, hear, and understand, Lord God. And more than that, we would uh, understand our position in this world that you've placed us, Father, uh, in the times in which we live, Lord, that we might understand how this applies to ourselves and to our lives, so we might um, live in a way that is pleasing to you, in a manner that is pleasing to you, and we might um, fulfill the mission for which you have, uh, which you have given to us, Lord. You've saved us for good works, Father, that we might walk in them. And we thank you, Lord, for, for that great salvation that we have in Christ, and as we uh, read your text and learn from your word, Lord. We pray that we would be molded and shaped into the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, looking here, let's go back and just, oh, before before I guess we do that, because I, I don't know. Um, we finished up the Revelation thing, and again, I know that was weird to some people. Uh, some people have heard things like that before, so it was fine for them. But for other people, it was paradigm shifting, I suppose you could say. You know, not to be too dramatic, but it really is a, a major paradigm shift. So if there were any questions about that before we go on, now would be the time to ask them. No? As I mean, everybody here has heard most of those things before, I think, right? No one. I think I scared everybody else away. <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. Good. Well, you know, uh, as we go through some of this stuff, we can, we're going to refer back to, well, forward to the Revelation, I suppose you could say, uh, a couple of other times, because I think we should understand how the Bible fits together. You know, that's important as we read. Remember when we were discussing in Hosea, like how one reads the Bible, there were some questions that we asked. And one of the major questions that we ask is, oh, what else does this remind you of, right? What does this remind you of? Where have I heard this before? And so by understanding where you've heard certain things before, you understand, you start to understand how the pieces fit together, right? How the Bible is uh, built certain themes that run through the scriptures from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, right? And as you start to make those connections and start to see these things, uh, it takes on a life of its own, as it is, as, as, as I say. 
and uh, you're able to better understand um, exactly what God is saying. And then through that, you're, be better, to you're better able to understand um, how God acts and works in history, throughout history. You know, these aren't just one-time events, but themes that we can see running through the course of all human history, right? So let's look at some of that uh, in our text here. Let's go, we should, well, I guess we'll start in verse 6 just to catch us up because we were in Revelation for, I don't know, like two months or so, and so maybe a little bit less. And so we'll uh, go from 6 to 10, all right, and we'll focus in on verses 9 and 10. So in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, are strongholds of the daughter. See, again, this translation, the way it's translated, in the ESV at least it says, uh, hill of the daughter of Zion. That's... No, not very good. Stronghold of daughter Zion. To you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. See, don't like that stuff. O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. All right. So, looking at this, like as we read uh, this, just in general reading, um, verse 9 can be read a couple ways, right? two different ways. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? That can be read as a reproach, um, but reading it that way, it sort of breaks from the hopeful message that is before, right? It's the beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 4, and what comes after. Uh, and it also just breaks it completely from, or disassociates it at least from verse, verse 10. But a lot of commentators I was reading do read this as a reproach. Did you have something? Oh, no, you're just scratching? Itchy ear. Itchy ear. All right. Uh, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. I mean, that does sound reproachful, doesn't it? Right? Um, but it can also be read as a more positive, in a more positive, hopeful light. Right? See, if you read... Is there no king in you as like a scion of David, as a descendant of David, right? It makes it sound as though your king is a mere stuffed shirt, right? A, a wooden puppet, right? Or even or worse, he's corrupt, right? Is there no king in you? Right? So it's a, it's a condemnation of, of the earthly king. But if we read it as, is there no king in you as it's Yahweh, as it's God, it is way more hopeful, right? Why are you crying aloud? Is there no king in you? Is God not with you? 
Is he not in your midst? Right? It changes the tenor of this dramatically, doesn't it? It changes the tone of how this is read. Uh, so um, I believe it should be read that way. Well, good. What were you going to say? Yes, there is. He, he brings the, the reference to a woman in labor. So there's pain, there's form, turmoil, but there's this great hope. There's this great hope right. before he's over. Absolutely. And this is temporary. Yes. Because they're going into judgment. Absolutely. But it's still hopeful, right? Right, right, right. But, but the, but the um, what's the temper of this? Is it... Is it negative or positive? Is it, um, a, what's up? Right, right, and it needs to be read, read in that in that way, I think. But you're right. There is there is still there is still an aspect of reproach in it, but it's it softens the blow tremendously by saying, "Is not God in your midst?" You know, it in that sense, it's a it's meant to shame into faith, right? Which is dramatically different than saying your king is completely corrupt or he's not even there. You know, he's an absentee king. You have no right. Um, and reading it in a manner where you have, uh, let's say it's a sign of David. Now we're dealing with two people. Is there a king in you? Has your counselor perished? We're dealing with multiple people here, right? If you read it as 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 Yahweh, as God. Um, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Right now, these, there's no reason to think that these are two separate people, right? Because God is both king and counselor, right? We know this. We see this all over the place, right? Uh, what do we have? One of the most uh, famous texts of the Old Testament. We read it every um, Christmas, right? For to us a child is born, a son is. Uh, to us, the son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Right? Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, we have this idea of both King and Counselor in one person, in one individual. And normally, kings have counselors. Right? What's the relationship between a king and a counselor, generally speaking? Good. Sure. Yep, and what does the king do? Make the decisions and? Exactly, and enact them. He's, he's more of an executive, right, in that sense. And, and biblically speaking, he'd also be a judge, but he still would take counsel. He would still take advice and then execute the judgments, you know, execute those decisions that he's made, right? So the, the counselor there is then meant to advise the king, the one who helps make the plans, helps lay the plans, and the king executes them, like brings them to pass, right? Why is God both king and counselor? Well, who can counsel the Lord, right? Um, who is his counselor? He is the one who both makes the plans and executes them, brings them to pass, right? So it's, it should be understood in, in, in that light as we, as we read this. So has your counselor perished? And if it's read as God, you know, then, and think about the wording here, as your counselor, uh, well, actually, I should explain a little bit of the wording, but just dealing with counselor, not not with the parish part. What was what was Israel's relationship to God? You know, uh, 
in terms of God's plans. Good. Yeah, yeah. They they held all of the promises of God, right? To them belonged the world, right? To Israel belonged all of creation. They were the new Adam, as it were, right? Or a new Adam. They were the ones who, as you said, were supposed to shepherd the nations into a glorious new era, right? An era of righteousness. Obviously, they failed miserably, yes? But that's why the true Israel had to come. And we're told about the true Israel more. In, uh, and that was always part of the promise, part of the hope, right? And part of why um, labor pains works so well. But we see this in chapter 5, right? In a few verses, we'll see how these things fit together. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, they should have had an understanding of what God's plans were for them as well. I mean, they had prophets, right? <laughs> they told them exactly what God was going to do uh, with, to, and for them, right? So they were always, or I should say they were never without hope, right? Uh, let's look here. Let's keep going. Another thing that's very interesting about this, too, is that word perish that's used... Uh, um, I'm not even going to try to say the Hebrew. Doesn't. It's like you know they just like mash consonants together. It's, uh, not even going to try. So, um, but the original meaning probably meant like to run away, right? Or to 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 go away, um, and it was expanded to mean perish, with the nuance of by becoming lost, right? I mean, when you live in a wilderness, desert environment, I guess that kind of works. <laughs> better than uh, where we live now, but regardless. Um, yeah, you wander off. You're probably going to die in the wilderness. So that the idea here works in terms of, in terms of exile. Uh, according to um, uh, Waki, he points something out that's the idea being, paraphrasing, uh, your counselor did not become lost and so perish in exile, did he? Because that's the idea that's being presented here, that they are, will be sent off into exile. So that parish contains that nuance with it. Go ahead, what were you going to say? That was actually part of what I was going to say. But, uh, <clears throat> because the mindset of the Jew was that they had been uh, abandoned by God. Mm. Uh, because, you know, for instance, let's take uh, the Ezekiel text. When they're in exile, you know, they're, they're away from the temple. Right. Yes. Right, in, in the exile. Right. Mindset, that, and that also adds to your point of view, which I agree with, uh, that this is not talking about the king of mm. David. It's talking about the relationship to God. Right, right. Yeah, the idea that, uh, as it even says, right, is there no king in you, right? That idea of in you is not necessarily, uh, you know, um, lo locutive or whatever, locational. It's, it's more um, in your midst as, as, as being with you, right? That idea uh, carries, that's the great promise, right, that God makes, that he's going to be with his people. Um, 
and that's that's really where the hope of even the exile lies that God went with his people into exile right he went with his remnant he abandoned his temple and went with him go ahead yeah go ahead sorry No. But in, in many ways, it was protecting the remnant. It, it, was, it was meant as a protection for his people, mm -hmm. not just you know, with the judgment, but also a protection. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. The exile is a judgment, but it also is also a protection. Um, we see this constantly. I'm, uh, all right. Now we're going to go down a rabbit trail. You guys ready for rabbit trail number one? <laughs> okay. All right. So, but no, it's, it's good that we, we talk about exile because it's important. Exile is very, very important. It's an important theme in the Bible. All themes in the Bible generally come from the Torah, right? And generally they come from the first book of the Torah, right? Exile. Where's the first place we see exile? The garden. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's where it begins. As a matter of fact, where do we see labor pains? Yeah, same exact place, right? In Genesis 3. Both of them begin in that same place. Um, so there's a real connection, I suppose you could say, between exile and labor pains. So there's a reason that God would even use that, use labor pains to describe exile. So when you see things about labor pains, you can think in terms of, there's a, well, I shouldn't say always, but there's a connection between those two things. The travail of exile is like a woman in birth giving, uh, in, in labor, you know, that, that anguish. Oh, good, what were you going to say? I was going to say, and indeed there's that hope, there's going to be that rebirth. Always that hope, because the promise was a son was going to be born to the seed of the, you know, the seed of the woman was going to come forth, right? A son was going to come, right? So the one who's going to lead the people back into the promised land, I suppose. But not just the promised land in terms of Israel, but the heavenly country that was promised to Abraham that we read about in Hebrews 11, right? That was going to be a restoration, not just of the people into the land, but a restoration of the, all the land itself, right? A restored paradise, a restored garden, if you will, right? So, um, making the whole world into a garden, right? That, that, what, is, what does Jesus say? Behold, I make all things new, as we read many times uh, throughout the past few weeks in Revelation 21. Um, but exile and protection, that's interesting. Because exile is a terrible thing. It really is. It's death, right? Uh, the idea of death, part of that, uh, there's a, a phrase that's used constantly in the uh, law as a punishment, right? If so-and-so does this, or if someone does this, then they shall be cut off from their people. It doesn't mean that they're going to be put to death, but it means that they're going to be exiled, you know? And there's an, this is another place where you get this idea of perish as in wandering, as in lost, as in going away, right? Yeah, you send somebody off into the wilderness, they will probably end up perishing. Um, but but uh, as we see this, with um, this happened 
to uh, Sarah's other half, Hagar, thank you. Yes, yeah, this happened to, to, to Hagar, right? She was sent away and she nearly perished with Ishmael in the wilderness, but God saved them, right? God came uh, to, and, and saved, saved them to be a thorn in the side of, of Sarah and her descendants. But regardless, um, exile and protection. So when we, when we look at the great exile, the exile that's coming, the exile that we read about here in our text in verse 10, right? Rather than groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go uh, out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, right? That, that, that is the exile that we, when people think of exile, that's it. The Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile. So um, when the people of God went to, actually there's a number of great exiles, but this is the great exile probably that we, that we read about. It is parallel to the sojourn that we read about in Genesis, right, of Jacob and his descendants going down into Egypt and dwelling there for 430 years, right? They went down into Egypt and dwelt there, and Joseph was, went down, down there before them, prepared a place for them, you know, and they came down, and they lived well for a while. And then there arose a king who did not know Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, etc. and they were put into slavery, and you know the story from there. Then there was the great deliverance, right? So that travail, that labor, the labor that would have occurred then was their slavery period and wilderness wanderings before that great hope of interesting, entering the promised land, right? Um, which is a picture of all of human history from Genesis on to Christ. Uh, but we see the same thing happen in the Babylonian exile, right? Who went on before paved the way for uh, the Jews as they went into exile? Who would have gone first? Some people, there was, remember, the exile, the Babylonian captivity happened in stages, right? Daniel, yeah, he was raised to the highest place, just like Joseph was seated right next to Pharaoh, so Daniel was seated right next to Nebuchadnezzar, right? He was one of the head honchos, right, as they, as they would say, in all of, uh, he was above the satraps, right? He was, he was the king's counselor. Um, so when God, through Ezekiel and Jeremiah, told the people, don't stay here, don't fight, go to Babylon, there you'll be safe, as you said, right? And they didn't want to, well, some did. The righteous were saved, the righteous, the people who listened, they went off into exile willingly. Um, those who rebelled, stayed, fought, or in Jer as in Jeremiah, they went back down to Egypt, which they were never to do again, right? And there they were slaughtered. Um, but Daniel went on before them and made a place for them. Uh, if you read Jeremiah, you read, uh, you know, that whole verse that, that's very popular. It's on all kinds of mugs or all kinds of inspirational cards or whatever. Yeah, you know, you know the plans I have for you and whatever, right? But the context of this is God's telling them, yeah, build your houses, make your gardens, pray for the peace of Babylon, live here, dwell here. It doesn't sound like a bad life, actually. It's not in, um, 
you know, the promised land. It's not in Judah and Israel, but it is still a decent life that they would have had there in Babylon. And from there, they would have had influence and impact and darn rabbit trails. We're gonna <laughs> but uh, well, I'll skip ahead just a, just a wee bit, okay? So God prepared that uh, Babylon for them, right? Through Daniel and his, and his work there. And God himself, we see in Ezekiel, that God himself left his temple and went with his people into the land of Shinar. So um, one of the beautiful things that we see in, and we, we spoke about this at the beginning of Micah, when I had the map up, um, if you guys remember, we were talking about the Assyria conquest and everything else, right? And then we looked at and saw how you know Babylon and Greece and Rome. Think about think about this. This is very interesting. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The very first dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, it's of this uh, metal man, right? It's of this giant uh, statue, and you know the head of gold, chest and torso of you know chest and arms of silver, bronze, and than iron and clay, right? You know, going all the way down. So um, when we look at that statue, those metals are symbolic of the temple or tabernacle, right? You know, the gold of the Holy of Holies, the silver of the holy place, the bronze of the outer court, whatever, on the mountains, which is of iron and clay. Yes. So. That's the the picture there is of a house, right? A, a, a a, the word temple, by the way, I've, I've said this before, but it's important to to understand. You know, is it does it just means house. That's literally what's like when David when Solomon built himself a palace and he built God a temple. It's he, Solomon built himself a house and built God a house. That's that's what it says. You know, it's a big house, but it's still it's merely a house. Um, and as a matter of fact, Cohen, right? That word Cohen, like. Leonard Cohen and you know whatever um, it's the Hebrew word for priest it literally means house servant or house slave right that's all it is so the, a priest is is that serves in the temple he's serving in the house of the Lord right he's just a house servant in the house of the Lord that's that's what it says literally you know we make these fancy uh, connotations to it but but still, that's what the word means. So when you house something, yes, you shelter it, you protect it, you whatever. So um, think about the location of well. F first, I should go back to house, the uh, God's house, right? That temple and that picture. Remember what those statue, those medals of those statues represent, right? They represent Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and the Romans, right? <clears throat> that's what all those those things re represent and then comes a stone that's cut without hands that smashes the feet of this thing and this whole temple or this whole statue comes down falls to the ground and is blown away like chaff on the wind right and the temple turns in I'm sorry the temple the stone turns into a great mountain that fills the entire earth right and that's the picture that's what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and it's explained that these are these kingdoms by Daniel so if that's a temple picture and these are kingdoms and we see from Ezekiel that God uprooted himself and went with his people into the land of Shinar then the house that God prepared for himself outside of Jerusalem is 
Well, it would be those empires, right? Those empires were meant to house God who is always in the midst of his people. So his people were commanded to, the faithful were commanded to go off into exile, and God went with them. And these pagan empires housed them. But then we see conversions occur within these um, these empires, right? We see Nebuchadnezzar being converted. We see the relationship that uh, Darius has with Daniel, right? Um, now, the Greek thing is where it starts to get a little wonky, I suppose, and that's why they're made of merely bronze and not silver or gold. But, uh, but they still honored the Jews, uh, and when they didn't, they were removed and other Greeks took over. You read this whole section in Daniel chapter 12 about the queen of the south and the king of the north and them waging war and going back and forth and back and forth. And unfortunately, caught right in the middle of that is poor uh, Jerusalem, where you have Syria up here, the Greek Syrians called the Seleucids, battling against the Egyptian um, Greeks. Like, you think of Cleopatra, right? Cleopatra wasn't Egyptian, she was Greek. Um, they're the Ptolemies, and so they battled with one another, conquering, you know, ruling this entire area, and so they had to pass through Israel every single time they wanted to get to fight each other. So as you have armies marching up and down, you know, through your land, it's never a good thing, it's, you know, ever. They rape and pillage along the way, right? I mean, armies have to be fed. And how do you feed an army? Well, they take from the land, generally speaking. You know, uh, so so it's never a good thing. However, what ends up hap what ended up happening was well, when the uh, let's say the the Seleucids right were ruling over that whole region, and they Israel was under their wing um, when they were treated fairly, when they weren't taxed heavily, when when. Uh, when they generally were able to live and worship in peace, then they were left alone, the Seleucids were left alone. But when they started to abuse, when a king would rise up, like uh, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, like these wicked kings of that empire would rise up and, uh, I don't know, what's the word, oppress the, the, the Jews of the people, then God would raise up the you know, kings of the south to come and conquer the kings of the north. And then the Ptolemies would rule over that region for a while, and then back and forth it would go. And we read this whole sequence of events in Daniel 12, um, and historically we know how this worked out, you know. But regardless, uh, so these, how, these uh, nations, right, well, and after the Greeks, they were wiped out by the Romans, and we know that Jerusalem lived under Rome for very, Israel lived under Rome for a very long period of time, right? Under Roman rule. And it wasn't just Roman oppression. They were still able to worship, you know, God. They were still able to do what they um, were called to do. Though by Christ's time it was corrupt and, and everything else, and we, we know this. But the Pharisees, when they arose, they arose out of the Babylonian exile, and they had a good purpose. Right? They wanted to be pure. They wanted to be clean. They wanted to worship God rightly and truly. But of course, you know, like any good thing, too much of it is, is not good. And they went a little too far, too extreme, and gained too much power. And they ended up 
being corrupt. Uh, but regardless, <clears throat> the idea of a house. Now, when you when you look at where these nations are, what's what's amazing, or these empires, I should say, are right. Beginning with Babylon, um, you think about where Israel is. Israel's here, and then all around Israel, like pretty much, you know, in the middle of this empire is Israel sheltered and protected in this heart of the Babylonian Empire. So too with the Greek, so too with the uh, Medo-Persian, and so too with the Roman uh, Empire. It's basically in the middle of this, this empire, sheltered and protected. And then, um, yeah, so exile is a bad thing. It is something that nobody wants. It is a type of death, but it does protect. And we see this um, explicitly we're going to go to uh, Revelation again. Uh, let me see here. I want to be at chapter 12. This is, this is something that I find to be interesting. Um, but it fits with what we're, we're, we're discussing here in terms of exile, the, the, the picture of exile, the picture of, of protection. Um, let's see. You know this in 12, right? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head 12 stars, and a crown of 12 stars. And now think about the, the picture and the connection that we spoke about here. What, what, what was wrong with this woman? Or what was going on with this woman at this time, right? She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head... Uh, head seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She uh, she gave birth to a male child, who one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where uh, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for a uh, hundred. I'm sorry, a thousand. 260 days, as it says, time, times, and half a time. Um, so what, what, what's going on in this text, at least? I mean, I'm not going to give you a, just a, I'll give you a general interpretation, a, a quick interpretation, and then we're going to fly through the rest of this stuff, hopefully. <laughs> we're not, are we? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, what's going on in this text? So, well, who's the woman? Who's the woman? What? No. I mean, yes, and no, no, it's not the church. Huh? Yeah, it's daughter Zion, right? She is in labor again, in great agony and great pain, and there's a great red dragon that wants to come and eat her child that she's about to bear. Who's that child? Who's that male child? Christ, right, yes. Israel was, or specifically Zion, Jerusalem, was to bring forth this... Uh, Messiah, the one who was to rule all the nations, right? And what happened? What happened to this person, this this woman, this daughter uh, Jerusalem, or daughter Zion, uh, or daughter Judah, or daughter Israel, however you want to say it? Um, well, God prepared a place for her in the wilderness. She had to leave her place and go off into the wilderness. I mean, we see this. Uh, quite explicitly in, in, in the story of Christ's birth, don't we? What happened in Jesus' birth? Why did he have to go down to Egypt? 
he was being hunted by Herod, this great red dragon, the representative of Satan, right? And he had to go off into exile, right? In place prepared. So we see this explicitly, right? The same picture, same theme that runs through uh, the text. So the idea is very similar here in the first exile, right? The first exile and exodus. What happened in um, Egypt when the Jews were in Egypt? No, no, but what happened to them? What was, what was going on there about their children and Pharaoh? Yeah, they were being killed. The male children were being slaughtered. See the theme that runs through the text? Right? Yeah, it goes all the way through. Because what was the promise? Who did God make the promise to? The serpent. God made the promise to the serpent. It says that, <laughs> that uh, her seed and your seed will be at war, and he will crush your head, right? So what is the dragon going to do? What's that great serpent going to do? He's going to kill all the seeds, so they can't do that. Nobody wants their head crushed, especially not the great dragon. So what happens? He tries to kill the seed, but God protects the seed in the wilderness, right? Leaves their place and has to go to a place prepared for them in the wilderness. So regardless, that's what we see happening here as well um, in, in our text. This, this, this idea of a woman in labor going from, let's read verse 10 of our text. Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There uh, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So we see the connection between a woman in labor and exile. Uh, again, um, I want to just, I think I could finish up this section, right? Uh, we talked about the hopefulness of this text because, again, it's painful, yes, labor, right? I've never been in labor. I can't tell you how painful it is. But I hear it's really bad. And then from there, you have salvation, right? You have deliverance, quite literally. You deliver a child, right? The word deliverance should be used uh, that way, I think. It should be understood that way. So um, God's going to deliver them, right? Or they shall... How do, we, how, do we, how do we put this? I don't want to carry the image too far. Because remember, these are pictures, right? These are meant to just convey ideas. Uh, so let's not carry it too far. I was going to try to go too far. I don't want to do that. That's bad. All right, so you have um, them being delivered after these, this great labor pain, right? Or salvation uh, coming forth from that labor. God delivering them. You know, so the, the picture's a little inverted at that point. But regardless, that's the idea. Uh, the suffering of the present moment prepares for the deliverance to come, right? That's the idea. That's the idea that we should have in our heads. Always, always. You read about labor pains, there's always a deliverance to come, right? There's always a delivery at the end of those labor pains. Right? That's the great hope. That's the great promise. That's why that picture is used. And it would have been easier had our for parents not sinned, because what did God promise the woman? Pain from labor, yes, I will increase your, your pain when you give birth, he says. You know, 
yeah, it's going to be bad when you give birth. So we go through that suffering, and then on the other side of that suffering is deliverance, right? Is a delivery into, in terms of salvation. That's the picture that's used throughout Scripture in terms of labor pains and delivery, right? What's up? Yes, exactly. Good. Exactly, exactly. He sees the same thing in was it um, Romans 8 about all of creation, uh, groaning, uh, etc., waiting for that resurrection, waiting for the deliverance. So the idea is that's the, that's the picture that's presented to us. And it's always painful, always painful, because that was the promise that was given to the woman that labor's going to really, really suck. Go ahead, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Messiah will be cut off. Yep, he'll be cut off, he'll be exiled. And he was exiled in the truest sense of the word exile. Because remember what exile is, uh, ultimately. We do it to this day, still. The worst thing that can happen to a person, we call it excommunication. What happens to that person? Yeah, they're exiled. Well, they're cut off from God, right? They're cut off from the temple. They're cut off from God. That's, that's the worst thing that can happen to, to an individual. So that's exactly what happened to Christ. He's going to be cut off, right? Not just from his people, but he's going to be cut off uh, in general. That's what it does say in Daniel. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And what did, he, what did Jesus say on the cross? Okay. Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hey, he was cut off, right? That's, that's the worst thing that can, can happen to an individual. All hope, everything is gone, you know. But for Christ, it wasn't, obviously. We know this. Um, uh, we're told this explicitly, and he, he went through that as in terms of, call that kind of a labor as well. Um, okay, so let's see here. So in just looking at our text, we're going to close this out, and I do want to move on, and we don't need to continue. Actually, darn it, we're going to have to continue on next week in the same text, but we'll finish up our labor, at least discussing that. Uh, the, the cry, all right, so let's read it one more time, because this needs to be understood, I think, right? Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Now, he says this, writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. So the first one, it's more of a rebuke, right? Why are you crying aloud? Why are you anguishing like a woman in labor? Isn't God with you, right? That's the, that's the picture that's presented in verse 9. But then using that same picture, he turns it around and turns that rebuke into an imperative, right? Into a command. Now he says, writhe and groan, O daughters, I am like a woman in labor. And he tells them why, right? And this labor is going to be a threefold process for them. For now you shall go out from the city. You're going to leave the safety and security of your dwelling. You're going to uh, dwell in the open country. And then they're going to go into dreaded Babylon. Right? Because remember, we spoke a little bit about Babylon. And this is what I want to continue um, next week. Because this is another theme that runs through all of Scripture that we should remember and understand. Um, who Babylon is, what they represent, right? Because Babylon begins in Genesis, right? You guys remember Babylon in Genesis? There was a big building named after it. 
<laughs> Babel, right? Babylon, yes. Uh, who founded it? Who remembers who founded it? Very good. Nimrod, yes. Nimrod was a founder of Assyria and Babylon. The land of Shinar was his domain. He was the first of the great mighty men. A mighty hunter. Our Bible say before the Lord. But the idea that's presented in terms of the Hebrew is opposing, right? It's like getting up in somebody's face. That's the idea. He opposed God. He was a mighty hunter opposing God, right? That's the picture that's presented in that. Uh, yeah, and he built, he built Babel. Well, it wasn't called Babel then, right? It became Babel once God confused our languages. But that's where we see the beginnings of Babylon. And where do we see the end of Babylon? We read a little bit of it in Revelation, right? See, the fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, right, in Revelation. So it's another thread that runs all the way through Scripture. It's very important to understand. Um, all right, so any thoughts, comments, or questions? No? So next week we'll read a little bit more about Babylon, and we'll go on to the next section of this. Probably, hopefully, uh, we might not be able to do it, but I'd like to try to finish Chapter 4, so then we can get to really fun stuff in... Um, uh, chapter 5, because this is another Christmas text, right? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Everybody knows this, yes? Yeah. All right. Any comments, thoughts, or questions? No? All right, very good. Let's close in prayer then. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, for your wisdom, Father God, uh, because in it you do show us how you operate in the world, how you move history, how you shape it, how you form it, Lord God. And, and Lord, through it, we do know our place in this world. We know how we are in a time of, well, seems to be exile, Father God. We are in a time of travail, in a time of anguish, Lord. And as a woman in labor, we have to persevere for that deliverance, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who gives us strength. We thank you that we are not alone, that you are always in the midst of your people, Lord, that Christ promised that he will always be with us to the very end, Lord. And we thank you for those promises. They are great and, and precious to us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, as we gather as your people, that you would, in fact, be with us, that you would indeed be in our midst, that we might truly be caught up to heaven, Lord, to worship you before your throne, Father. And as we pray that you would hear our prayers, as we sing that you would receive our praise as a pleasing sacrifice, Father God. And we uh, pray, Lord, that as we hear your word preached, it would be as though we hear your voice, Father, and it would mold us and shape us and make us like Christ. Lord, and as we eat and drink the blood and body of your Son, that you would truly see Christ in us, Father, and remember us and, and hear our prayers, remember our plight, Father God, and as we go forth into the world, that you would be with us when we carry you and carry Christ into the world to do your work and do uh, your will, Father. But Lord, now, as we begin to worship you, Lord, that we would 
we pray that we would come before you with clean hands and a pure heart, and that you, again, would be pleased and glorified and honored in our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.